Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Basilica, Director of the Clinical Specialists and Scientists here at ASHP, and thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2021 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting that focuses on the best practices and actionable steps that you can use in your practice to make meaningful changes towards a more equitable, diverse, and inclusive team and organization. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. Medically underserved areas or populations are areas or populations designated as having too few primary care providers, high infant mortality, high poverty, or a high elderly population. When we think about barriers to medication access, there are several, but we can put them in sort of different categories. So the first category that we think about is healthcare coverage and stability. We know that in our COVID pandemic that there have been a wide range of issues with healthcare coverage, especially with many people losing their work status or not being able to have the amount of work that they were able to do before. And so for a lot of people, that has also come with losing their healthcare coverage and has led to that instability in the amount of coverage that they have. We'll talk a lot today about prescription costs and prescription availability. So not only does a medication have to be cost effective, but it also has to be available to the patient. And so sometimes we worry about the actual cost of the medication, and then sometimes we worry about the patient actually being able to obtain that medication and being able to get to a pharmacy that might be able to have that medication at that effective cost. With our pandemic, we've also had an exacerbation of social inequalities when it comes to medication access. And we know that this is an ongoing problem and the recent changes in work status we know has affected different populations in different ways. And so when we think about medication access and we think about that population that we're serving, we do have to think about how do we work on social equality and working to make sure that all our patients have access to care. I've already kind of alluded to transportation and location being an issue for many of our patients. The pharmacy or place that the patient might be able to obtain a medication may not seem far away, but given different patient aspects and their ability to have mobility, transportation can look like a lot of different things. And typically we don't think about just distance, but that actual ability to have that transportation in the form of transportation needed to be able to get that medication. We also see generational differences, and we can think about, you know, our elderly population or our very young population, and what are the differences that they engage in different healthcare settings and in terms of medication access. So when we think about generations, we can think about our elderly patients not having the ability to navigate some of these complicated processes that we'll talk about, especially in situations like patient assistance programs. This is the time of year when we are seeing a lot of our Medicare patients fall into that coverage gap. And are they able to navigate the requirements of applying for patient assistance? And then for our younger population, having them understand what are the processes, how do I work through them, and what are the resources I need to go to in order to attain medications. So there are different barriers depending on which generation you're talking about and to what degree they are engaged in the medication access 
process. And then finally, kind of alluding to that generational difference is also a difference in technology and the way that our patient populations adapt to technology. For some people, we can have an elderly person who I've seen quite a few <laughs> who engage with technology quite well, and it's not a barrier for them versus a younger population who may not have access to technology, didn't grow up with the ability to engage in technology, even though they may be of a younger age, they still may not have that ability. So when we think about technology, both access and adapting to it, we have to think about the specific patient, what is their history and what is their ability and availability to different technologies. The first resource that we'll talk about today is retail discount medications. So these are medications that are available at various different retail pharmacies, but may be cheaper compared to some of the name brand medications. So first thing we always typically think about is those generic medication lists. We think about that $4 list or $9 list or whatever that price point might be. But these are generic medications that are available and that are at a relatively lower cost compared to branded medications. And I do want to emphasize here that when we think about discount and we think about lower cost, I always like to add that piece of relative because what might seem like a low cost, a $4 list or a $9 list, you know, depending on on the patient and the income of that patient, that may still be expensive for some patients. And especially when they have multiple medications with lots of comorbid conditions, $4 can add up very, very quickly when you have a very complex patient who's on several medications that they're taking on a regular basis. Next, we'll kind of think about those nonprofit or discount pharmacies. I also put into this category the donation pharmacies. So some examples of those are Rx Outreach or Good Pill or Blink Health. These are all pharmacies that offer medications at a discount, as well as our donation dispensaries who have the ability to work with medication manufacturers in order to offer medications at a discounted price. And in some situations, they might be free, or it might just be that cost of the dispensing as opposed to the actual cost of the drug. Depending on where the patient is and what resources are available, these might be an option. I will caution with some of these, it can be complicated for patients because there is typically, depending on which one it is, still a fee that's associated with the cost of the medication. It might be a low fee, but there's still that fee there. So for our people who are not able to afford any fees at all, this may or may not be a good option. And then we think about discount coupons, and there's various different coupon opportunities that are out there. Common ones include GoodRx, Rx Saver. We'll talk a little bit about needy meds in a bit. And then of course, many of our manufacturers for our branded medications do offer manufacturer discount coupons. And so that's an option for some patients. There are some drawbacks to these retail discount programs. There are, as I've sort of alluded to, there are limited locations. So especially when we think about our donation dispensaries, oftentimes there's just one location or maybe just a couple locations in a given area. And so there is that access issue of where is that pharmacy located or where is that opportunity located? And is there that transportation for a patient to be able to get to that location? is that in a place that they can actually get to. Because we're talking about discounted medications, there's often limited medications and those medications can change frequently throughout time. So having the patient understand what is the drug class of the medication that they're taking, for example, an ACE inhibitor, they might you know, be shifting from one ACE inhibitor
inhibitor to another. And so having them understand that it's still in the same drug class and it may still be beneficial for them, but helping them navigate those different changes and having patients understand that, you know, that same medication may not be available at any given time and helping them make those transitions. And so there's not medication errors is an issue that we typically have to deal with. When we're talking about these different retail opportunities, it is different from pharmacy to pharmacy. So you might have one medication that has a good discount at one pharmacy, and there might be another medication that has a discount at another pharmacy. And so we do see that patients are bouncing from one pharmacy to the next, and they kind of suffer from this polypharmacy issue in which we're not able to have our pharmacists catch drug interactions and, you know, having multiple fills and those types of things. And it can be quite hard to really understand where's the patient getting their medication? Is it being sent to the right pharmacy from the prescriber? And then, you know, how do we follow up in terms of adherence and making sure that we're really understanding exactly where these medications are coming from? There are some price comparison websites that kind of alluded to that one pharmacy versus the other. And so some good resources for that includes GoodRx, NeedyMeds, and Rx Assist. These are just a few examples, but helping price compare is really helpful. So as an example, one thing that I've dealt with this week is inhalers. They are historically known to be very expensive, but recently we've had some generic come to market that have been able to be a little bit more cost effective. But I know in my area, we can get one inhaler for discount price at one pharmacy versus then we have to go to another pharmacy for another inhaler. So that that can get very confusing for the patient, can get very confusing for our healthcare providers and our prescribers. But, you know, when we have patients who do need these resources, it is available. We just have to make sure we're doing lots of documentation. All right, I kind of wanted to walk through Needy Meds and show how this website can be beneficial. So this is Needy Meds and you'll find right where our arrow is that you can type in the name of a drug there and it will start to provide you with resources that are available for that medication. So once you type in the name of the drug and you select it, it will give you a list of different icons across sort of the underneath where the drug name is listed. And each icon corresponds to the resource that is available if you click on that icon. So NeedyMeds has several resources available. It's quite comprehensive in terms of helping patients with medication access. And so the first icon that is available is patient assistance. This oftentimes, if there is a patient assistance program available for the medication through various manufacturers, that patient assistance link will be connected to that. And it oftentimes gives you some background on what are the requirements for that patient assistance program and gives you the tools to be able to navigate to that to really understand is that patient eligible for that. There's also an icon for those discounted generics, kind of what we talked about earlier. So that's nice to know, is this available in a generic that's at a discount? It often gives links to those coupons that we mentioned, especially in terms of those manufacturer coupons for many of our patients who are able to utilize those. There's support pages with information, there's drug videos, and there's also drug information has various different amounts depending on the information available for the medication. So this is a useful resource in terms of helping to find different available options depending on the patient's insurance and whether they qualify for these different programs. 
In terms of our Medicare patients, there's also a resource available on Medicare.gov for, and it works similarly in that you can type in the name of a medication and it will help you to find if there is sort of a nationwide pharmaceutical assistance program available for any given medication. And then there's also a state pharmaceutical assistance program search option as well. So different states have different options and different programs are available in different states. And so it can help you to navigate on that sort of state level on what might be available to your patient in your given area. I'd like us to walk through kind of the complexity of our manufacturer medication assistance programs. These are quite complicated, and so we're going to talk about them in a little bit more detail. Different manufacturers have different programs, and the requirements for each medication is different and usually based on the manufacturer. But even within a given manufacturer, sometimes the requirements for different tiers of medications can be different. Common things that these programs are looking for is the income level. So sometimes they set it at 400% of the poverty line. Sometimes it's 200% of the poverty line. Sometimes it's 300. It all kind of depends on what medication it is and what that program covers. So it's something to think about. You know, just because a patient may not qualify for one program doesn't mean that they don't qualify for another. Sometimes within the same drug class and sometimes within different drug classes. I work on lots of patients with diabetes. And so with them, you know, we're often switching from one company to another based on the information that they're able to provide to me. These programs are often also based on insurance. It's very common for these programs to have coverage for people who are uninsured and for those in the Medicare gap when they have Medicare Part D. But one thing I do want to highlight here is that this isn't necessarily true for all programs. Typically, we think about the uninsured, but there are some programs, especially now within our pandemic, that have expanded their programs to include those who are not able to afford their medications. And the definition for that is not always well spelled out. And so I usually encourage my patients, especially if I have a program that kind of has that language in it, to apply to see if they would qualify even despite having insurance especially when it comes to my Medicare patients and that Medicare Part D piece when they fall into that coverage gap. Another component that they typically ask for is residency and citizenship. And so some of them will require citizenship, but others will just require residency and proof of residency. That language difference is important to, to figure out, are they asking about citizenship or are they asking about residency? And you know what evidence does the person you're working with have in order to show their residency versus citizenship and really understand what is that program asking for? As I mentioned, there are several steps to this process and anybody who's done this has known the frustrations of all these various different steps and how long this process can take. But what I wanna highlight as we go through each one of these steps is our role as the pharmacy team and what we can do to help our patients to get medication access. So it starts with the patient and the patient being able to complete the application and show their documentation. And then it, there's also typically a provider piece where the provider is providing that prescription for the medication. The application is submitted, it's approved by the manufacturer or the program that you're working with. And then finally, the medication has to be delivered to the patient. So in terms of the patient application, our role in terms of the pharmacy team is to help with medication selection. I alluded to this earlier when I mentioned that, you know, there are some manufacturers that require different criteria 
for different medications. So within a drug class, you may select one medication or another medication based on what is the information that the patient is able to provide, what kind of documents are they able to provide, and what medication can I then apply for. So you might think outside of the box and think about a different medication in the same drug class that may have different requirements. And this is something I commonly do with many different disease states, but especially our diabetes and our inhalers. I've noticed that these programs are highly variable. So I really encourage that. We can provide education at this point, explaining to our patients what are these different documents that the program is asking for, and then we can follow up. This is the biggest piece I feel like my team does is we contact our patients You know, in a few days. Hey, were you able to find that financial document that we discussed? Do you have any questions about that? Such an important piece is that follow-up because these patients often don't understand the process, and it really falls on, at least in my case, a lot of times falls on our team to kind of be those people to be that cheerleader and to really do that follow-up piece and get those questions answered. Next, it's up to the provider for the prescription. And this is where I find communication is key. When I'm working with patients, I might have switched to what medication I used about three or four times, depending on what kind of information the patient has given to me. And so it's important for our providers to understand what medication are we actually doing and is that properly documented in the EHR and really understanding what is the patient taking now and what are they transitioning to and how are we going to facilitate that transition. And then we'll submit the application. Again, we can follow up here. These applications, sometimes we get communication back on whether that patient has been accepted in the program, and sometimes we don't get that communication. Sometimes that communication is lost. And so following up with the patient and following up with the program to see, did the patient qualify? And then once the medication application has been approved. Again, following up to make sure that the shipment of the medication is out and that the patient realizes that they have qualified for the program. And then a lot of these programs do renew annually. So it's really important to make sure we're following up with our patients, knowing when did their application get approved and when will we have to resubmit for renewal. Finally, medication delivery. So depending on the program, they may deliver to home or they may deliver to the clinic. So working with the patient to understand, is your insulin sitting at your front door or is it sitting on our refrigerator at the clinic? I had to do that this week, being able to go ask the patient, can you go check your front door instead of your back door? Did it end up there? Come to find out it was in our refrigerator in our clinic and the patient just didn't realize it had missed that phone call from our office. So that kind of follow-up, figuring out where exactly is that medication and watching the tracking of that is something our pharmacy team can do. There are lots of cons to this process. It's time consuming, as I've alluded to. That income verification can be extremely hard to get from a patient because that financial documentation is often not easy for them to get a hold of, whether it be taxes or their income statements. Oftentimes that's very difficult. There is a delay in receiving these medications because it has to go through all of those steps. And so what are you going to do in the interim? Is there a medication that you can give them in the short term to get them through until they can get the medication from the assistance program. And then oftentimes we don't know what adherence is. There's oftentimes not a pharmacy we can call in this case to be able to see are they getting the medication and are they taking it on a regular basis. Next, we'll talk a little bit more about medication donation programs. These are often donated drugs from manufacturers. Some examples include Direct Relief, AmeriCares, Dispensary of Hope, the PAN Foundation, and local community programs. These are great opportunities where manufacturers will donate various different drugs, oftentimes free to their community partners. 
there's lots of cons to this. There's variability in inventory where similar to what we talked about before, where you might've been able to get one medication before, but now you can't. These programs also have a lot of reporting requirements. And so the where I've seen these used the most is in free clinics. So when you add that reporting burden, that can have to be difficult for them to track where are these medications going and who's getting them. There's lots of documentation in that to ensure patient safety, but it also is a lot of legwork. And then you often have to store these in the clinic setting or in sort of a, a pharmacy setting. So is there the physical space available for that? And then finally, because they are donations, a lot of times there'll be early expiration dates and, you know, we may not be able to give the patient a large supply. And so if it's hard for them to get to whatever the dispensary is, and we have that complication of early expiration dates, then that can be complicated in terms of medication access as well. Let's review some additional strategies to promote medication affordability. So we would like to utilize generic medications as they are usually the most cost-effective strategy and allow us to partner with local pharmacy discount programs if available. But if no affordable generic is available, consider exploring patient assistance programs for brand name only medications. We also wanna consider the distributed cost of the medication per month for our patients, as we found that utilizing 90-day supplies is typically more cost-effective versus 30-day supplies, especially when you are using certain discount drug programs that provide 90-day supplies of medications. However, this is an important discussion to have with our patients as this can increase those costs upfront. Patients may not be able to have the resources upfront for that. So it would be an important counseling or education point to inform the patient that if they're not able to pay for that prescription for the 90-day supply, they can always request a 30-day supply be filled. And then lastly, we wanna make sure that we're making appropriate recommendations to optimize the regimen for affordability. And these may include suggestions such as using an alternate dose or dosage form that may be more affordable or substituting the medication for another one within the class. Just make sure that if you're suggesting a different dose that they would need a pill cutter for, that they have access to that. And then we also need to review insurance formularies and make sure that we are selecting preferred medications. And sometimes that can be cumbersome to identify if the patient's not quite sure exactly which formulary would apply. And then lastly, we wanna encourage and assist our Medicare patients to review their prescription drug plans annually. That's something that the pharmacist can assist with and that the patients are enrolled in eligible state and federal programs. Well, thanks to Dr. Mischer and Dr. Lesenby, we've now covered resources, including discount drug lists, patient assistance programs, donation dispensaries, and manufacturer samples available to improve medication access for underserved populations. We have also outlined the provider's role in improving care for uninsured and underinsured patients through medication access. And now we will focus on how we can design, implement, and sustain initiatives for enhanced medication access within our practice setting. Let's consider a case. RP is a pharmacist at HCS, a for-profit healthcare system located in a medically underserved area that offers hospital and ambulatory pharmacy services. The patient population consists of 76% uninsured, 6% private insurance, 7% Medicare, and 11% Medicaid patients. Most of the patients are categorized as underserved. Before joining HCS, RP was employed at a not-for-profit major healthcare system where most patients had excellent medication insurance. 
For uninsured patients, the MHS Medical Foundation would cover a significant portion of the medication cost. Medication adherence rates and hospital readmission numbers were amongst the best in the country. RP is concerned because most of the medications prescribed at HCS are not filled by the patients, especially the newer and more expensive therapies recommended by evidence-based guidelines as standard of care. What can RP do to encourage medication access for the HCS patients? Well, for starters, RP could find cost-effective therapy champions. This role can be filled by various disciplines. For example, in a hospital or clinic setting, it could be a medical assistant, a social worker, a nurse, a pharmacist, a PA, a physician. And in community pharmacies, it could be pharmacists or technicians. RP could lead or co-lead education initiatives. For example, in-services for providers focusing on topics like those mentioned in previous slides by Drs. Lizenby and Drs. Mischer. In a collaborative approach, the staff at HCS could develop and implement policies and procedures to identify and resolve medication access problems. Think of, for example, standing orders, situations where support staff could automatically interchange between different medications. And obviously, this list is not all-inclusive. So finding cost-effective therapy and conducting in-services and establishing standing orders are some approaches to encourage medication access. But how can we make sure these changes are adopted and sustainable? I'm not a gambling person, but if I was, right, I would bet almost everyone listening and watching this today has been part of an organizational change initiative. And many of those changes perhaps were not successful, but some initiatives have beaten the odds. So what are some evidence-based approaches to yield sustained medication access for our underserved patients? One approach is the team steps approach or team strategies and tools to encourage performance and patient safety, which is a teamwork system developed jointly by the DOD and the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality to improve institutional collaboration and communication relating to patient safety. Now, while team steps teaches teamwork skills and strategies and looks and tools to enhance teamwork at its roots, it's an organizational change initiative. Further, the good thing is it's entirely available via open access in the websites listed below at the bottom of the slide. So how do we get started? Well, we get started with Team Steps Change Model, Kotler's Eight Steps of Changes, and 10 Steps of Implementation Planning. The first thing is we need to create a sense of urgency, talking about a need for change, right? More importantly, the consequences of not changing. So what happens if we don't implement this change? Our patients continue to go with on medication. Our patients continue to be readmitted and costs continue to rise. And the frustration that we continue to have as healthcare providers continues to rise. So we need to think of ways to solve the problem to make the case for change. The next thing we got to do is we got to pull together the guiding team. Think of like the Avengers. Okay, maybe not the Avengers, but a very important team, right? Because this team needs to be powerful, multidisciplinary group guiding the change. One that has leadership skills, credibility, communications ability, authority, analytical skills, and a sense of urgency tying back to the first step. Once you've assembled your team and you have created that sense of urgency, then it's about developing a change vision and a strategy. We need to clarify how the future will be different for our patients and from the past and how you and your team can make that future a reality. As leaders, we have to create a compelling vision, one that answers questions, you know, what do we want to achieve and where do we want to be in the future in terms of our healthcare setting? And as Dr. Mischer said earlier, communication is key. And that brings us to step four, right? Communicating and understanding and having buy-in because failure to implement change is often the result of under-communicating or communicating poorly within our healthcare system. 
Now, there are going to be resistance that arises, and we have to accept and plan for that. Next, we have to empower members to affect change. Once we do have that team and the communication has been understood, we need to remove as many barriers as possible so that those who want to make vision a reality can do so. If we think about what Dr. Linsenby was saying earlier in terms of how many steps and Dr. Misher it takes to be able to obtain a prescription to a patient assistance programs, the more barriers that are on there, the more difficult it will be for the patient to receive that medication. Once we are successful though, it's important that we do not let up, press harder and faster after the first success so that our patients can continue to have those medications. And lastly, we arrive at step eight, creating a new culture. You know, Carter reminds us that changing culture comes last, not first, right? So we have to be patient, whether it's to monitoring, integrating, or providing coaching in our healthcare settings to continue to advocate for our patients who cannot afford those medications. So moving on to some key takeaways. Number one, available resources should be utilized to assist medication access for underserved patient populations. Recalling key features of each resource can aid in selecting the best resource for each patient. All healthcare providers have a role in advocating for patients and navigating medication price, discount, and patient assistance programs. Utilizing the correct resources allow for increased patient access to optimal medication supply. The Institute for Healthcare Improvement, triple aim, is to lower the cost of healthcare, enhance the patient experience, and improve population health. And there's a quadruple aim, right, which also focuses on the healthcare provider. To achieve it, an evidence-based teamwork such as Team Steps can be implemented to encourage sustained medication access for all patients, especially the underserved populations. Thanks so much for listening into today's episode. For more resources on incorporating diversity, equity, and inclusion into your practice, visit ashb.org backslash DEI. Be sure to follow us at ASHB Official wherever you listen to podcasts and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2021 Major Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Vasilika from ASHB Official and thanks for listening in.